Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read through the entire psalm. It's only 12 verses. Let me read it, then we'll pray and, uh, and jump right in. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. I pray, God, that you would speak to us, teach us. Holy Spirit, come. We know you are the teacher of the church. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach us as we open up your word. Um, give us hearts that are humble and uh, ready to receive what you would speak to us today, Lord, uh, trusting that you're with us and that you're guiding our time in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. <clears throat> there was, I was trying to figure out how to tackle this psalm because it's, it's obviously it's a heavy psalm. It's pretty heavy. There's a lot of heavy kind of concepts there. And uh, there's so many ways that we could kind of um, approach this psalm or things we could pull out. I, I think what I want to do is I kind of want to just give a quick summary of the psalm. If I were to summarize this psalm in just a couple sentences, it would probably be this. Jesus Christ reigns as king over all creation. And there are two possible responses to that reality. You can either rage against him or you can take refuge in him. One of them is futile, and the other brings blessing. Now, let me defend that summary, okay? So we're just pull it back a little bit. There's a summary of the entire psalm. If I would give it, that's how I would give it in a couple sentences. Let me peel back and defend that, because the first thing that I said there was that I believe Psalm 2 in the Old Testament is about the fact that Jesus Christ reigns as king over all creation. So if you're following along in your notes, that's our first section there. It would be this, that Jesus reigns. Now, hang on a second. This psalm never said the name Jesus. So why would you say that Psalm 2 is about Jesus? And I think it's really important for me to defend that statement if I'm going to make it. Ultimately, I think that all of the Bible, we've said this in this series already, that all of the scriptures ultimately point to Jesus. But I'm going to show you how this one specifically points to Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take together against the Lord and against his anointed. So we're talking about the one who reigns here is called the Lord's anointed. Now look at verse six. But as for me, this is God speaking, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So verse two talks about the kings of the earth. Verse six talks about the Lord's anointed king. Okay, and we're meant to see that contrast. So there are kings of the earth, and then there's the Lord's anointed king over all. It says, you, you guys are kings of the earth, but I have set my king, God speaking, on my holy hill. So verse 2 calls him the Lord's anointed. Verse 6 calls him king. So who is this? Who is the Lord's anointed king? Well, I've already asserted that it's Jesus, that we're talking about Jesus. But how do we know that? First of all, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Like, 
there's Bill Christ and Tommy Christ, and then there's Jesus Christ. Like, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a, it's a, it's a title, okay? Christ means anointed, the anointed one, the Messiah. So all of the Old Testament is prophetically pointing to God sending his Messiah, his Savior, the anointed one. So everything that you're reading about, I will send my anointed one. I will send the Messiah. That Christ means the Messiah. So it's like saying Jesus is the Christ, which the New Testament clearly says or calls him Christ Jesus. It's not just Jesus is the first name, Christ is the last name. It's saying Christ is the anointed one. Christ is the Messiah. So when it says, talks about the anointed one, or is against the Lord and against his anointed, it's talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, and Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. So that's the first thing. But verse 7 also gives us another clue that this is about Jesus. So look at verse 7. God speaking, or it says the son speaking, it says, I'll tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. So this anointed king is the begotten son of God, right? So anointed king is the begotten son of God. According to scripture, who is the only begotten son of God? That'd be Jesus. Look at John chapter one, verse 14. I have it in your notes. And the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the most famous verses in scripture, John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so this begotten, this only begotten son of God that Psalm chapter two, verse seven talks about, the Lord said to me, you're my son, today I've begotten you. The begotten son of God is Jesus Christ. So that's the second way that we know that this Psalm is about Jesus. But what does it mean to, what does the word begotten mean? So I, I can't, honestly, I can't spend a ton of time on this. I wanted to. It's a separate teaching, okay? Uh, because an in-depth explanation of this would be its own sermon. But what we need to understand is that the word begotten does not here mean created or produced. Some have taken verses like this or the verses that we just read in the New Testament to say, oh, Jesus was a begotten son. That means Jesus was created by God. And that's not what this means in this context, it doesn't mean created or produced. Jesus was not created. Jesus was eternally existent with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. There was never a time which Jesus did not exist or when he came into being. That's what scripture clearly teaches in other places. I wish I had time to kind of do an in-depth teaching on that, but I'd love to if you want to kind of plow through that sometime, let's do that. So we know that Jesus is eternally existent with the Father and with the Spirit. So begotten here does not literally mean born, as maybe we would use it in other places. It must mean something else. And so what does today I have begotten you mean? Well, the New Testament helps us here. Acts chapter 13, verses 30 through 33. This is the most scripture we're going to kind of have in any section here, but I think it's good to show you the, the verses on it, okay? Acts chapter 13 verses 30 through 33. All we're doing is defending the fact that this is about Jesus and what does it mean that Jesus um, is the Lord's anointed? What does it mean that he was begotten? Acts chapter 13 says, but God raised him from the dead, speaking of Jesus, raised him from the dead, his resurrection, and for many days he, Jesus, appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers in the Old Testament, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Just as it's also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so they, the first disciples, you can see here, they clearly understood that Psalm 2 was about Jesus. They said, oh, Jesus was raised from the dead? And we understand that this is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, when it says, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at later. I know I have it in your notes right there. You can look at it, but we're going to actually look at it later. Acts chapter 4 shows us this too, that the early disciples understood Psalm 2 in the Old Testament was about Jesus. 
that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the one that was raised from the dead. And when it says he was raised from the dead and that fulfilled this phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what does that mean? Today I have begotten you then refers to the day when Jesus was raised from the dead and began to reign with power and authority over all creation. Look at what Jesus himself said after his resurrection. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came to his disciples and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, when Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, God speaking says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and the son says, the father said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What it's talking about is when Jesus rose from the grave and took his seat on the throne, reigning and ruling as the true king of kings and lord of lords over all of creation with authority and dominion over everyone and everything everywhere. So that's what this means in context. Psalm 2, 6, and 7 is God the Father speaking to the Son, saying, you're my Son, and today you've risen from the grave, and it's coronation day. Today you begin to reign as king, exalted and given dominion over all creation. So they understood that Psalm 2 was about Jesus. Now let me give you one more thing real quick, and I know I've just really driven this point home, but I want you to make sure that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air when I say that Psalm 2 is about Jesus. When we hear of a massive collection, think of, if you've ever read the book of Revelation or, or studied any of the end time kind of events, okay? And you hear of and read of a massive, so and think of Psalm 2. When we see in Psalm 2 a massive confederation, a, a, a federation of nations that has gathered together to make war on God, we can't help but picture the end times battle spoken of in the book of Revelation, can we? So when I think of nations assembling to rage against God, I can't help but think of this battle that's spoken of in the book of Revelation. And uh, Bible commentator William MacDonald said this. He said, to put this psalm in its proper setting, we must look ahead to the time when a vast federation of rulers and nations will unite in a passionate determination to prevent Jesus Christ from taking the reins of world government. And that's why, so this psalm is also talking about when nations assemble in that final day to rage against the reign of Jesus Christ. And that's why this psalm, Psalm 2, is quoted at least three times in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 27 Talking about Jesus, it says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's quoting Psalm 2. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, speaking of Jesus. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It's quoting Psalm chapter 2. Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 and 16, speaking of Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he, Jesus, has a name written. And here it is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This psalm is all about Jesus. It's about the absolute reign and rule of Jesus Christ the Christ, the Lord's anointed king over all. He is the king over all kings and the Lord above all lords. He reigns and rules over all of creation. Now, we've established that. What are we going to do with that? Because that's a fact. That is a reality, whether we like it, embrace it, accept it, acknowledge it or not. That Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of all. He reigns and rules over all creation. What are we going to do with that truth? Well, many will rage against him. Rage against his rule, rage against his reign, and some will take refuge in him. And so let's look first at those who rebel. That's your next section, rebellion and God's response. Let me read verses one through three. 
again, rebellion against the reign of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see God's response. The rebellion we see here in verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, we've already established that this, that this Lord's anointed king is Jesus, and so this raging is raging against the reign of Jesus. People rejecting Jesus as Lord, rejecting Jesus as king, rejecting him as the reigning ruler over all. Have you ever noticed that the position of many of those who reject God is not a position of indifference, but a position of rage? Most people aren't indifferent when they think of God. Those who reject him, many of them aren't indifferent. They're not like, eh, I think we do. Many people are angry. It's like the famous line about the atheist who says, there absolutely is no God, and I hate him. Right? So they, they kind of reveal their bias in that, reveal that there's something more than just an ideological argument or intellectual concepts happening here. There's anger towards God. There's rage, as verse 1 says. Why do the nations rage against him? Nations are raging against God. People rage against God. It says rulers are raging against God. Now, we don't have to work very hard to imagine people and rulers and leaders raging against God, do we? We, we just have to open our eyes, okay? We just have to open our eyes and look at the world, and we see very clearly nations filled with people and leaders who reject the rule of Jesus, who reject the, the kingdom of God, and who rage against the kingdom of God, and who work in opposition to the kingdom of God. We don't have to, we don't have to imagine that. We see it every day. Verse 1 says they plot against God, against Christ and his kingdom. It says this in verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves. What does that mean? To set yourself is to station yourself, it's to take a stand, it's to be established, fixed, set, entrenched in your opposition to God. They've set themselves in this position. And I love this phrase, this interesting phrase. A lot of this actually points back to what we learned in Psalm one. People that are set, they get entrenched and their opposition to God. And then we see this in verse two. The kings of the earth set themselves, and look at this phrase, and the rulers take counsel together. They take counsel together against the Lord. So what does it mean to take counsel together against the Lord? That is, they set themselves in opposition to the Lord, and then they seek the counsel, seek the advice of others who have done the same. They take counsel together against the Lord. So it appears, well, I'm, I'm seeking counsel. It appears to be seeking advice and wise counsel, but it only has the appearance of seeking wise counsel. In reality, it's just groupthink. It's just living in an echo chamber with other people who've also rejected God. So when you reject God and take a stand against him and then seek out the advice of others who have done the same thing, are you really seeking wise counsel or are you just seeking affirmation of your position of rebellion against God? So it says they, they set themselves and then they take counsel together. So it's just, it's just living in this echo chamber of like-minded people who are also rebelling against God, which only reinforces your own rebellion. Psalm 1 talks about that's what it's like to walk in the counsel of the wicked. We're seeking advice, we're seeking counsel, but where, where are we seeking it from? But why do this? Why? Like, why rage against God and plot against God and set yourself against God and take counsel with others who have done the same in opposition to God, why do I do that? Verse three, I think, gives us the answer. It says, they took counsel together against the Lord, saying this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. People reject God and rebel against God and rage against God because they tend to view the reign of Jesus as oppressive, as restrictive, as binding, not as something that sets them free. 
All the commands, oh, Jesus is a buzzkill. He's trying to keep me from something that's fun or good. And so it's so restrictive to be a Christian. Like following Jesus is so binding. It's so restrictive. And so it seemed like bonds and cords. Oh, it's bondage. Don't bring me in bondage to your religion. Don't bring me in bondage to commands of Jesus. Don't, don't do that. They see it as, as oppressive and restrictive and binding instead of liberating. And yet everyone who is in Jesus Christ and has a relationship with him understands that to reject Jesus is to remain a slave of sin, is to be in bondage to the corruption of the world, our own corrupt desires of the flesh and, and, and the, the way of the world and headed for destruction. We know that God's commands are not a barrier keeping us from something good, but a hedge of protection keeping us from something that will destroy us. And, and the reality is we know that to surrender to Jesus, to submit to Jesus, is to be actually released from bondage. The New Testament would say, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, is truly free. Jesus is the liberator. He liberates us from our bondage to sin and death and the penalty and destruction of that. There's a fake freedom that the world promises. That sin promises. Be free, man. Go do this. You can do anything you want. You're free. Go be free. Don't be bound by you know, restrictions and limitations and religion and rules. And don't be bound by that garbage, man. Just be free. There's a fake freedom that's promised by the world that actually leads us into bondage and enslaves us. So the world sees the rule and reign of Jesus as something that's binding and oppressive, and they want to be free from that. They want to be free from his rule, free to do whatever. But really, freedom from Jesus is no freedom at all. It's an illusion. It leads to destruction. Breaking the bonds of God will not produce freedom in any true and lasting sense. It will produce absolute devastation and slavery to sin. That kind of freedom produces slavery. That kind of freedom produces more bondage and more destruction and more brokenness. I, was, I don't know why. I don't have any idea why. But as I was putting this together, I thought of the uh, Disney cartoon Pinocchio. I don't know why. But remember, they, like, they were lured to the island or whatever it was by like, this promise of freedom. Like, eat whatever you want, smoke cigarettes, play pool, do your thing. Like, remember, it was like, oh, go here, and it's cool. And what happened? They ended up becoming slaves and jackasses. Right? <laughs> And so, I don't know why that image was in my head, but it was like, that's what sin does, right? That's what this kind of freedom, all oh, be free. Come here, you can do whatever you want, man. There's no parents telling you what to do. You can stay up as long as you want, eat whatever you want. They got sick, they, and they became enslaved. And that, to me, I don't know why, but Pinocchio popped in my head when I was reading Psalm 2 this week. It was like, man, no, that's a, it's promising freedom, but it ends in bondage. It ends in destruction. That's the freedom that the world promises, that sin promises. And so we go, oh, I don't want to be bound by Jesus' commands, by the commands of God. I don't want to do that. I want to follow him. It's oppressive. That's a cord. That's a bondage. Let's break that. And I'm going to be free to do whatever I want. Listen, you're free to take illicit drugs, but that may lead you to the bondage and slavery or pain of addiction. Right? Or God forbid the devastation of death. How many people, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, and the things that they do in their freedom create destruction. The things that they do in their freedom hurt other people. I've been guilty, I'm so guilty that every time we sin, it affects other people. And we're all sinners, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we've established that. And yet to give myself over to that kind of freedom is to give myself over to bondage and to destruction. So the thing that I think sets me free actually binds me. And the thing that I think binds me actually sets me free. But the world sees the reign of Jesus as oppressive and binding and so rages against him in violent opposition to his lordship. Now, I want you to picture this for a second. Like in your mind's eye, I want you to imagine a federation of nations, a collection of nations, their people and their leaders rising up and raging against God in unified opposition to his reign. And unified nations 
in opposition to his kingdom. How do you think God responds to that? Do you imagine that he's pacing the floor, wringing his hands, fearful and stressed out over such an attack on his throne? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. He's not afraid. He's not confused. He's not depressed. Why don't they accept me? Why don't they like me? I'm a pretty good God. He's not stressed out. What if they succeed? There's no fear in God. There's no stress or worry. He's laughing. He's looking at nations raging against him, and he just laughs. Why? Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He laughs because he knows that all of their raging and plotting and unified opposition to him is pointless. It's an exercise in futility. It's completely vain and futile to attempt to dethrone Jesus. He knows that, as Scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's the promise of Scripture. It says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Every, every enemy of God, every fake Christian, every atheist, every pastor, priest, rabbi, and mullah, every millionaire and every homeless person, every governor, senator, president, prince, and king on the earth, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it's an exercise in absolute futility to rage against his rule. All of the rebellious raging and plotting in the world can never remove God from his throne. He reigns. It can never diminish his rule in the slightest. And so, listen, many, I, I wanted to go into a little history lesson here about those who attempted to stamp out Christianity. Okay, maybe we'll do that at some point. But man, do the research. There are people who have made it their life's goal and mission to stamp out Christianity and any mention of the name of Jesus. And every one of them, I, I was going to share with you names of people who were important at the time, but who we have forgotten. And yet, the name of Jesus Christ is still proclaimed in all the earth. Here's what we need to know today. Why is this important? Because there are times when it seems very dark and that things are not going well for the work of God's kingdom in this world. Isn't that true? There are just seasons when we're prone to discouragement as we look around and see that the way the world is raging against God and against his kingdom. We need to know that even when things seem their worst and their darkest, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because he knows all the raging against him in the world. No matter how loud the voices get here and now, it's ultimately pointless and futile. Verse 4 says, he laughs, and then it says, the Lord holds them in derision. Now, we don't like to think of God this way, but what does derision mean? That means like contemptuous ridicule or mockery. The Lord actually mocks those who mock him. The Lord actually mocks the absurdity of rebelling against him. He laughs and he's like, what? It's like I can picture God mock, like, you're, what are you going to do? You rage up against me? Like he's laughing and mocking the attempt to rage against him. I know we like soft, you know, flowing hair, tender, walking through a field of daisies, hippie Jesus. I know we like that. I get it. And listen, God is tender and gracious and good. And God is so good. It's the greatest news in the world that God is great and awesome and powerful and he's so good. So, so yes, he's tender and he's loving and he's gracious, he's forgiven, he's merciful and all those things. He's also not a God to be trifled with. And the scripture makes that clear over and over and over. Johnny Cash got it right. He said, my arms are too short to box with God. 
So God is laughing and mocking the absolute absurdity of their rebellion. And then verse 5, it says this. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. William McDonald again, he says this. Eventually, God will break his silence. And when he speaks, it will be in such wrath and fury that his enemies will be terrified. I want us, I know it's uncomfortable, but I want us for a second to imagine that. The God that spoke and is so powerful that his words created everything that we've ever seen or known and things that we haven't yet even discovered. His words are that powerful. And now this God is speaking in wrath and fury. I don't know what you think of when you read that. I don't know what you see here, but I'll tell you what I see. I see the mercy of God. I see the mercy of God, and here's why. It didn't say God is destroying them in his wrath. Now, for those who continue to rebel, we're going to see that kind of thing in a few verses, okay? Those who refuse to repent and, re- and continue to rebel and rage against God, the ultimate end of that is destruction. We're going to see that. But for right now, God is not destroying them in his wrath. In verse 5, it says he will speak to them in his wrath. He's warning them. He's warning them. How amazingly gracious and merciful God is to warn us. I want you to think about this because people always want to accuse God of being awful when they read passages like this. As if they have the moral superior kind of high ground to God. Well, if God does that, I'm better than him. You know, my morals are higher. I want you to think about how gracious God is to even speak to us in wrath or to speak to us a word of correction or to speak to us in a way that would jar us and grab a hold of us. He's under no obligation to do so, right? Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled, we've all rejected. That's what scripture says. And so if God just in his perfect holiness just poured out his wrath without one word of warning, he would be perfectly righteous and justified in doing so. And yet he warns. He warns in love. So if God's voice convicting you of sin shakes and jolts you to your core and causes you to abandon your rebellion against him and begin to follow him, that is nothing but grace and mercy on God's part. So I don't know what you see when you see God will speak to them in his wrath, but I see God's mercy speaking. Instead of just acting right now, he's speaking a word of warning. So everybody wants to attack. I've been in many conversations with like, you know, uh, people who reject God, atheists, agnostics, and they go, oh, if God exists, he's horrible because he, you know, he, he destroyed, you know, the Amalekites or the Amorites, different people. And I go, okay, cool. We're ignoring the hundreds of years of opportunity that God gave them to repent. You just jump right to that. You're ignoring the sin that they've committed, the way that they're trying to commit genocide on the people of God. Hundreds of years of God saying, repent or destruction's coming. Repent, it's warning, words of warning. And then when it comes, we go, God's so bad. God's so awful to do that, to judge. No, God is gracious to warn. God is gracious to warn. And so he speaks to them in his wrath, terrifies them in his fear. But what does he say? Verse six, he says, I've set my king on my hill. So I know you guys are little kings of the earth, and you may be the king of that little nation, you may be the president of this little country. I, I, I've set my king over all. So every king, you have a king. Every ruler, you have a ruler. Notice that this warning is applying to all people, but it's specifically directed at the rulers and kings of the earth. Verse 10, therefore, O kings, be wise. Rulers, be warned. It's intentionally aimed at those who are in positions of power. God reminds them that there's a higher power still that they will have to answer to. He reminds them that Jesus reigns over them. Verse seven and eight. I'll tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, the nations, all nations, the ends of the earth belong to Jesus. They are his possession is what that verse just said. 
He possesses all things. Scripture says the earth and all of its fullness belongs to the Lord. Now look at verse 9. This is for that, those that continue in rage and rebellion against God and against the rule of Jesus Christ. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is heavy stuff, I know. Heavy. But it's right there. The picture here is of a potter who is formed like a clay vessel. That vessel is his. It belongs to him, and he has absolute power and authority over it to do with it whatever he pleases. And the image here is of him then taking like an iron bar and smashing that dry clay pot to pieces. It gives us that image to illustrate this. That is the kind of authority that Jesus has over the nations. So so this is why God laughs when people rage against him because it's like, really? In response to the raging of nations, God laughs He mocks the futility of their rebellion. He speaks to them in his wrath, warning them. He declares the reign of Jesus and reminds them that he rules them with a rod of iron and has the power to break them if it goes that far. Verse 10 says this, Now therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ reigns absolutely, Over all nations, over every king, over every ruler, over every lord, that rebellion against him is futile. In light of those things, the proper response would be what? What is the proper response to the reign and rule of Jesus and the absolute futility of rebellion against him? I will give you quickly six things and we'll be done. Six things. Number one, be wise and heed God's warning. Be wise and heed God's warning. This is in your notes. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Use wisdom. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Those who are wise will heed the gracious warning of God. So be wise and heed his warning. Number two. It's a proper response. Serve the Lord with fear. That's verse 11 also. Serve the Lord with fear. That's what it says, flat out. Now, therefore, in light of his reign, in light of the futility of rebellion, serve him with fear. Serve the Lord. That means abandon your rebellion. Stop serving sin and your ego and the desires of your flesh. Stop serving the enemy. Defect from the army that is raging against God and pledge yourself to serving the Lord. Scripture tells us we're all servants of either sin or of God. That's it. So we're all slaves. We're all servants in some way, okay? It says, defect from that side and pledge yourself to serving the Lord. Serve him with absolute devotion. It says, serve with fear. That just means awe and reverence and respect and honor. Think of the Lord's Prayer. It's beautiful because there's this tenderness, this intimacy, but it also has reverence. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Starts our Father. Our Father. Abba, Daddy, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, revered, respected, be your name. Honored, be your name. So, so it is to serve the Lord with fear. Third, proper response is to rejoice with trembling. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that an interesting kind of seemingly paradoxical phrase, like, I know what it is to rejoice. Got that. I know what it is to tremble. But to rejoice with trembling. Isn't that a weird phrase? And yet, that's the amazing response of those who see God in all of his power and glory and goodness. We rejoice in his presence because we know that he is so good. And we tremble in his presence because we know that he is so great. He's so powerful. And so we rejoice in him and we rejoice with trembling, with respect. It's Father, hallowed be your name. Happening at the same time. 
They don't contradict each other. They don't cancel each other out. We rejoice in him always. And we have reverence and respect. We tremble in the presence of his awesome power. We never lose sight of one or the other. If you're just rejoicing without trembling, there's error. If you're just trembling and don't understand what there is to rejoice in God about, then you've missed something in the gospel too. So we rejoice with trembling, is what the scripture says. We rejoice that he reigns with such authority that no matter who's president, Jesus is king. We rejoice that all rebellion will be shattered one day, dashed to pieces, that every wrong will be made right, that every injustice will be answered for. It's funny to me that people cry for justice and work against injustice and then rage against judgment. You can't have a God who brings justice without having a God of judgment. You can't have one without the other. When we're asking for God to bring justice or to right wrongs in this world, we're asking for him to bring judgment. We're asking for him to make judgments that these things are good and these things are evil. So we don't get justice without judgment. We don't get it. We can't have it. And so let's rejoice that God will bring justice, that he rights every wrong, that every injustice will be answered for, and that he is our refuge. Number four. I said I got six and we're plowing through them quick enough. We're going to get out of here on time, okay? Number four, kiss the son. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. What does it mean to kiss the son? It's an interesting phrase. We don't use it all the time. Kiss the son, right? It's talking about submission and honor again. Submit to him, honor him. In the ancient Eastern culture, the inferior would always give their superior a kiss of submission. Think of like, kiss the ring, you know? It's like honor, respect, understand my position, understand my authority over you, submit to that, come under that. Be submitted to him, be submitted to his word, be submitted to his way. He, he doesn't exist to prop you up. God's not an addendum or an attachment or something that I add to my life. It's not my story and he exists in it. It's his story and I get to be a part of that. So it says, kiss, kiss the son. Like that, give, honor him. to him in an honoring way. Number five, take refuge in him. This also comes from verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Refuge just means shelter. It's a stronghold. It's a safe place. Think of being in a, in a stronghold during a storm. Out in the storm, man, things are not going good for me. But if I can make it to the stronghold, if I can make it to the refuge, I get inside, then things are safe. It says, he is our refuge. We take refuge in him. Now listen, this psalm was heavy. It's talking about the wrath of God, speaking his wrath, and dashing people to pieces. And I just need to understand, we need us to understand that in the storm of God's wrath, he is your refuge. Because what we want to do is we want to run from him. And we really only have the two options. We can either run from him or we can run to him. We can try to hide from him or we can hide ourselves from that storm in him. That's what scripture teaches over and over and over again. That the only way to avoid the storm of his wrath is by hiding in him. I thought of here another movie. I don't know why. I'm like movie this week. But you ever seen the movie Twister? Like the old uh, movie about like storm chasers and tornadoes? I don't know why I thought about that. But you remember like I think it was towards the end where they, they got caught in this massive tornado. Right? And they knew it was coming. What do we do? What do we do? It's coming. It's coming this way. And they just kind of anchored themselves to something that had deep roots in the earth. You know? They anchored themselves there. And then the storm comes and they're just, oh, things are flying everywhere. It's like they, they didn't expect that they were going to survive. That storm is hitting. It's awful. It's destroying everything in its path. And then, boom, they hit the eye of the storm. And everything was just beautiful and calm. And listen, 
this is kind of the picture that the scripture gives about, about the wrath of God. The only safe place from the wrath of God is in God. It's in God. It's abandoning your rebellion, saying, I can't do it on my own. I'm hiding my life in yours. Scripture says, put on Christ. Hide in him. Be found in him is what Scripture says over and over again. And then in that, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ. Because you're in the eye of the storm. That all that God is and his holiness and his, and his absolute um, justice and, and righteousness in Punishing sin doesn't fall on you because you're in him. So it says, in that storm, in the raging of God, take refuge in him. Take refuge in him. Trust in his goodness and his grace toward those who repent and believe in him. Sixth, final thing. What's the proper response to the fact that Jesus Christ reigns and rules and and over all things. Be bold and fearless in the face of rage. Be bold and fearless when the world rages against God and against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Be bold and fearless in the face of that rage. Listen, the early church, we're gonna jump into the New Testament here, Acts 4, and this is where we're gonna land. The early church had seen Jesus rise from the grave. Now, I don't know what kind of confidence that would inspire in you, okay, but, but we saw it with like Peter, who was denying Christ in front of a young girl, you know, just before Jesus' crucifixion. After his resurrection, he's preaching boldly to thousands of people. There was a boldness that came upon Peter after the resurrection, okay? So they had seen Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and then they saw him rise from the grave, and they went out then preaching that good news, okay? And they saw people, as they preached that gospel, they saw people rage against it. They saw some people get saved, but they saw people rage against it and call them fools for believing that and say all kinds of crazy raging against the kingdom of God. Don't put that oppressive rule on me. Don't, you know, all this raging against God. They experienced tremendous persecution and opposition to the kingdom of God. In one instance, Peter and John were arrested for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. They were threatened to never speak in the name of Jesus Christ again, and then they were released. And what do you think they did? When they were released, they gathered together with other followers of Jesus, and they prayed, God, give us greater boldness to speak even more about you. Christians were being killed for speaking in the name of Jesus, and they were just threatened to their very lives. If you ever speak in the name of Jesus again, you're gonna be killed. And they went out and they gathered with other believers and they prayed and they prayed, God, make us even more bold. Make us even more bold. But what was the foundation for that prayer request? Why could they be that bold? Why could they pray that kind of prayer and expect God to respond and give them that kind of boldness? Because that prayer was rooted in Psalm 2. That prayer was rooted in what they understood about God, about the reign of Jesus Christ from Psalm chapter two, that Jesus reigns over all the earth and that all of these attempts to rage against the kingdom of God that they were experiencing were ultimately futile. Look at Acts chapter four, verses 23 through 31, the last verses we have for the day. Acts chapter four, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted up their voices together to God and said this, Sovereign Lord, that is God that rules with absolute sovereignty over all creation. Sovereign Lord, you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then what do they quote? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed one. Both Herod was gathered together against him and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, Herod, Uh, Pilate, everybody's gathering against Jesus, your anointed one, and they're raging against him. And they said, now, 
It says that gather together against them to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to us, your servants, that we will continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice they said that David spoke, says that the Psalm 2 was, let's go back in this, Psalm 2 was spoken, says through the mouth of David by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 2 was written then by who? By the Holy Spirit, through David. So we don't get to take or leave these words. We don't get to pick and choose and go, you know what, I, I don't like that part. I'm going to do away with Psalm 2 because I don't agree with what David wrote there. It says here that it was written through David, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaking through David. And it says here that their boldness was rooted in the absolute reign of Jesus Christ and that all the raging against the kingdom of God that they saw, they just saw it as a fulfillment of Psalm 2 and they know how Psalm 2 ultimately concludes that it's futile to rage against him and so their path is one of futility and our path is the one that endures forever. We are the ones that will be blessed for taking refuge in him and trusting in him and giving our lives over to him. So how can we Continue to speak the word of God with boldness in the face of a culture that rages against God and the very idea of God and the commands of God. Because Jesus Christ reigns over all the earth and every attempt by every person everywhere to reject his rule is in vain. Every Attack, every opposition, every ounce of raging against him will fail. He will never be knocked off his throne. That ought to make us bold. That should burn away every ounce of fear or embarrassment that we have about the good news of Jesus Christ. Are you going to share about Jesus with people and they're going to think you're an absolute fool? Yes. Yes. Are people going to reject that and push back and hate God and reject his commands Rebel against the kingdom of God? Yes. Are you going to get caught up in that and the persecution, the ridicule, and the mockery? We don't experience persecution here like they do in other countries. I'm going to just tell you that. But we've, we face smaller forms, ridicule, and we lose, you know, friends, and we lose credibility. We're thought of as idiots. Like, we have all that that we have here. We're going to face that. How can we continue to do that and continue to preach this word and stand on this word with boldness? Because we know it was spoken by the Holy Spirit through these writers, and that ultimately rejection and rebellion against that, raging against God is pointless. So that should make us bold. And so the proper response to the rule and reign of Jesus is to be wise enough to heed his warning, to abandon our rebellion against him, to serve him with fear, to rejoice in him with trembling, to honor him as king, to take refuge in him and trust in him and be bold in the face of opposition to him. May God grant us a heart to respond in that way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that you would um, give us a heart that responds to your gracious words of warning with reverence, with rejoicing, Lead us to take refuge in you and trust in you. To stop trying to hide from you and start hiding in you. Stop running from you and raging against you, but run to you. And trust in you for salvation. We honor and respect and submit to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. 